0: If anybody would like one from the sermon today, I have them on me. If you would like one, everybody has one? Good? Thank you. This morning, the title of the message is True Worship, taken from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. I will be repeating... Um, the answers, the the fill-ins on the (coughs) outline. Uh, So if you hear me say something twice, you know it's to help with the outline. Just a few months ago, I remember reading a quote (coughs) from the missionary Jim Elliott, which got my attention. Perhaps you heard it as well. It said this, quote, Wherever you are, Be all there. The quote goes on to say this. Live to the hilt every situation. You believe to be the will of God. Now that thought is a a great thought, but it, it wasn't original with Jim Elliot. In fact, its roots go back to God's revelation in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example... In the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 says, Solomon puts it in this way, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Wherever you are, be all there. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Or we could go to the New Testament in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul writes, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. Whatever you do, do heartily. Do it with all your might. Do it with all your strength. This is what God expects from us. And yet, distraction is ever-present reality in our lives. I was sharing with Mark, Earlier this morning, I went to a, a good operations meeting at work, <coughs> and somebody prepared a presentation um, to give us. There was managers there, directors there, there were frontline supervisors, and everybody's got their phone on, And through this presentation for about 45 minutes, every single person there, unfortunately, even myself, am getting distracted with the phone. I got a service person in, uh, in the Rockaways that has uh, gas readings in a hallway on the third floor of a building. I, uh, we got another guy. He's on a ghastly call. His machine is broken. He needs somebody to drop him off a new gas detector. We have somebody that just called in on a 3 to 11 shift. He's not going to be in today. Now we got to scramble and run the overtime list to get person to fill that. And that's just me. There was about 20 people at this meeting. Everybody's doing the same thing. This person that presented this presentation worked hard on this. He put everything he probably had into this, and we're all fumbling and walking outside and taking phone calls and on our phones. Distraction has become an ever-present reality, I believe, in all of our lives. Wherever there is distraction and a lack of focus, a great problem exists even for believers. Believers and that is when we come together as we have this morning to worship Jesus Christ you see you and i were hardwired to worship god redeemed us to worship him now and forever that's why we exist as believers but nothing i'm excuse me but everything that claims to be worship is in fact true worship it gets more complicated because even all that claims to be worship in our day of the one true God isn't true worship. In Leviticus chapter 10, we read the story of Aaron's sons, Nabab and Abihu, and we are reminded of the fact that they intended to worship God. And yet God was greatly angered by their worship. So really the most important question this morning is this, what is acceptable worship? What is the worship that God receives from us? Well Jesus answers that question in this interchange he has with this Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Today I want us to briefly examine just one part of this passage. Let me read it for you. I'll read the larger paragraph in context, so we'll start in verse nine, 19. Jesus has just brought out the fact of this woman's sin, her sexual sin. And starting in verse 19, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. That is, the Samaritans worshipped there at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. I probably said that wrong. I apologize. And your people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship, that's the Samaritans, what you don't know. We worship the Jews what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What a remarkable passage. In these short verses, Jesus teaches us how to worship God. True worship is obviously the theme of this brief paragraph. John the Apostle in his Gospel uses the Greek word for worship 11 times here. Nine of those are in these verses we have just read. But in just two of the verses we just read, verses 23 and 24, our Lord really opens up the heart of worship. He teaches us about worship, and in part, Jesus says that true worship must be mindful worship in the truest sense of that expression. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, I want us to see what Jesus teaches about the issue of worship. And what I want us to do is check ourselves. Examine ourselves. How is our worship? That's the point here. As we walk through this passage, ask yourself, How is your worship as you come before the Lord? How is it as you sit under the teaching of his word, singing praise to his name? Let's see what Jesus has to say about true, mindful worship. Well, Jesus begins these two verses by identifying the two characteristics of true worship. And actually, I was supposed to repeat Jesus says that true worship must be mindful worship if you're taking notes. Point number one, I apologize. Notice verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, in the flow of the context here, Jesus is making a contrast. He's contrasting what's just going on before it. In contrast to worship that is all caught up in external things, like the place you worship. That was this woman in verses 20 and 21. Or in contrast to the worship that is uninformed and ignorant, like in verse 22. You worship what you don't know, Jesus said. Or in contrast to that, in verse 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This is John's familiar way. This is Jesus' way to talk about what is happening through his life and his work. Jesus says, My work is ushering in a significant change in worship. Worship is no longer going to be about a particular place and it's no longer going to be without a true knowledge of God. Rather, notice what verse 23 says. Number two. (laughs) True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Did you notice that Jesus defines true worshiper simply as a true believer? They're synonymous. Every genuine Christian will worship. And how can you recognize true worshipers? Well, the key to that little phrase in verse 23, and it's repeated again in, in verse 24, is in spirit and truth. True worshipers worship like this. The Lord teaches us volumes about true worship. He unlocks the heart of worship. And notice, first of all, that both of these nouns, truth and spirit, are objects of one preposition. And this is important. He doesn't say, in spirit and in truth, as they are two completely unrelated things. No. By putting them together with one preposition, he is saying that these two qualities, these two characteristics, spirit and truth, belong together and cannot be separated. These two nouns identify for us the two characteristics of acceptable worship. Let's look at them together. First of all, acceptable worship is worship in truth. Let me say that again. Acceptable worship is worship in truth. Now let me summarize what Jesus meant by truth. In context, in the flow of this passage, Jesus said our worship must be in truth. He was underscoring several different criteria of biblical worship. Let me give you a list And you can think about it, go back and meditate on it as we go through this passage. First of all, if you're going to worship in truth, it means your worship must be directed to the biblical teaching God revealed in Scripture. Let me say that again. Worship must be directed to the biblical teaching God revealed in Scripture. There is no worship. There is no truth. In worship, if you are directing it to something else or someone else. Secondly, it must be based on the complete revelation of Scripture. It must be based on the complete revelation of Scripture. You see, the Samaritans, the woman to whom Jesus was speaking to, only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They refused to embrace the rest of the Old Testament. So they worshipped in an incomplete way. They didn't know what they worshipped or who they worshipped. That's Jesus' point in this passage. We have to worship in truth. And that means our worship is based on the complete revelation of God as contained in the entirety of Scripture. Scripture. Thirdly, it's going to be rooted in truth. It's going to be rooted in truth. Our worship must include only the elements that Scripture prescribes. In other words, we don't get to decide. You don't get to decide. The elders, the church, we don't get to decide what we do in worship. God decides what we do in worship. And this is called the regulative principle. Only what Scripture actually prescribes is acceptable in the worship of God. John Calvin puts it this way. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned in His Word. He disapproves of everything that He doesn't expressly sanction in His Word. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 are identical on this. Listen to what they write. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will, that is the scripture, that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. The regulative principle asks this question. Does Scripture command or sanction this practice in corporate worship? Again, does Scripture command or sanction this practice in corporate worship? If not, then it's not allowed. So what are the elements of corporate worship? There are seven, and I'm going to list them for you. There are seven prescribed elements in corporate worship in Scripture. This is where the church has historically been. First of all, we sing the Scriptures. We sing the Scriptures. That is, we sing music that is rooted in the truth of God's Word. Secondly, we pray the Scriptures. We pray the Scriptures. We pray in ways that grow out of our response to the Holy Scriptures. Thirdly, we give our offerings to see the true scriptural worship supported in this place and extended through evangelism and church planting throughout the world. We give our offerings. Number four, we read the Scripture. We read the Scripture. Number five, we teach the Scriptures. We teach God's Word. We sit under the teaching and authority of God's Word. Number six, we see the Scriptures acted out in baptism. We see the Scriptures acted out in baptism. Do you understand that This baptistry over here is commanded by our Lord. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality of a changed life by the Spirit of Christ in a true believer's life. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And number seven, we see the Scriptures acted out as well at the Lord's table. We see the Scriptures acted out in the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul said, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Do you understand that God prescribed those elements? That's why we do them here at New Village Church. That's why we don't do other things. Listen, true worship is only what God prescribes. And this is what he has prescribed. When we understand that, those seven elements are prescribed by God, and only those seven elements, it adds great confirmation to our obedience to God's word every Sunday. Why? Because this is what God, the God of the universe, demands that we do in worship. But he also adds, but it also adds joy. Because we do these seven things here together and we do them with the right heart as to the Lord. And it brings our God great joy and glory. This is true worship. And it delights His heart as we sing the Word, as we pray the Word, as we read the Word, as we listen to the Word taught, even as we are right now. We are worshiping God in exactly the ways He's commanded and which He has blessed. When we give from our offerings to the Lord, we see His word acted out in baptism and the Lord's table. We are current we are truly worshiping God, and we know it because He has prescribed it. If we are going to worship corporately. Jesus our Lord, in spirit and truth, it must be grounded in a life of obedience to Christ and his word. I would like to take you through this passage and show you how in confronting this woman's sin, Jesus is making this very point to her. But there are also other passages that make the same point as well. Let me just quickly go over those for you. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, external worship, and to heed than the fat of rams. He wasn't downplaying the importance of sacrifice. We need to understand that. God commanded that. He was saying, God is not going to accept your worship if it comes out of a life of disobedience. The first characteristic of true worship is to be rooted in the truth, meaning it must be offered through and centered in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. True worship is to be rooted in the truth meaning it must be offered through and centered in Jesus Christ. While the Samaritans' view of the Messiah was severely limited because of only accepting the Pentateuch, the five first five books of the Bible, they did expect the Messiah to come. Notice John 4, verse 25. This woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. This woman was saying, Jesus, what you're telling me may be true, but I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, I believe what he says. He will declare everything to us. I'm going to wait to hear from the Messiah. She understood, she got that even though this sinful woman living in a pattern of unrepentant sin went and and externally worshipped at Mount Gerizim there in Samaria. She went there. She understood Messiah was coming. He was the only one true mediator between God and man. She knew that. The one through whom the Father seeks out as a worshiper. And in response to her words, for the very first time in his ministry, Jesus announced that he was the Messiah. Notice what he says in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Have you ever thought about that? The very first time Jesus announces that he is a Messiah, he announces it to a sinful Samaritan woman. Why? Because she was one the Father had sent him to seek. She comes to faith in Christ. So in verse 26, when Jesus says, I am the Messiah, that's more than a statement of fact. That's an invitation to believe in him. An invitation to her, which she received. I know Jesus came to each one of us at one point of our lives. Came to the Samaritan woman and by his grace we believed and we committed our lives to follow him. As he revealed himself to us, it was an invitation for us to believe, to confess him as Lord and to follow him, repenting of our sins and trusting and believing that what he did on the cross for us He did it once and for all. And he took away our sins. He washed our sins away. And he reconciled us to God through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus moves on and identifies a second characteristic of true worship. We must worship in spirit. This is really where I want to spend some time together this morning, verse 23, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Now you might first be tempted to think, which I was, this is talking about the Holy Spirit. And, and it is true, right? I mean, it's true that the Holy Spirit is the one that enables us and energizes us to worship if you have ever truly worshiped god which i know we have then it's been because of the work of the holy spirit he energizes enable us to do that for example philippians 3 verse 3 says we are the true circumcision who worship in our thought in the spirit or no i'm sorry we are the true circumcision who worship in or through the spirit of god So that's true, but that's not what Jesus is saying in John chapter 4. In John 4, he is not referring to the Holy Spirit. That's obvious because of this logical connection. Notice what he says. Because God is spirit, we must worship in spirit. You see the connection he's making? Because of the nature of who God is, We must worship a certain way. In other words, Jesus says each of us must worship in our own spirit. I use the word must because that word is found in verse 24. Notice what he says. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That Greek word translated must literally means it is necessary. It is necessary for us to worship God in our spirit. Now, what does Jesus mean? Well, again, let's take this apart. When Jesus said that worship must be in spirit, he intended several truths about worship. Number one, acceptable worship is a matter of the heart. Acceptable worship is is a matter of the heart, not merely external. True worship must flow from an immaterial part of us. By the way, this isn't some new requirement. God has always demanded this of those who come near to him in worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the greatest commandment, what does it say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is how the faithful have always worshipped, with their spirit, with the immaterial part of them engaged. I love Psalm 103. How does 103 begin? Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David says to himself, and all that is within me, Bless His holy name. Come to the New Testament and you find the same reality. Early in the Gospels, you come to Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary says this, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in my God and Savior. To worship in spirit means that you worship God in your own spirit, that is, with your whole heart. Worship requires the complete participation of our entire being, not just our body, but our soul. The Samaritan woman understood that her body had to be engaged in worship. She had to show up to Mount Gerizim. She had to be in the right place. She had to bow at the right times. She had to say the right prayers. She had to make the right sacrifices. However, her heart was a million miles away. And by God's grace, many of us were saved for those kind of religious institutions by His grace, because that's exactly what we did. We went to church every Sunday. We did the same things. We read the same things. We kneeled at the exact same times. We did everything according to what we were supposed to do. Meanwhile, our hearts were far, far, far away. Praise God. Sound familiar? (laughs) It is familiar to most of us. This Samaritan woman was living in a pattern of unrepentant sin. And she was content to do so. So was I. Before God saved me. And Jesus comes to her and says, listen, it's not enough that your body shows up here. You must worship God with your entire soul. In spirit and truth. Superficial, mechanical worship is unacceptable to God. He demands that our worship be an expression of, of our entire being. Why? Well, the answer is in verse 24. God is spirit. That is an amazing statement. Jesus' directive for us to worship him in spirit is, is, is predicated on this huge theological assertion about the being of God. God is spirit. By the way, the Greek construction of that expression shows that Jesus is using the word spirit here to refer to the nature or the essence of God. God's essential nature is spirit. What does that mean? Well, you understand that the universe has two kinds of existence, right? We know that, right? There's material, that is matter, and there is immaterial, which isn't matter. God, in his essence, is immaterial. God has none of the properties that belong to matter. God's essence is of the nature of spirit. God is not material. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have flesh and bones. He's invisible. His presence is ever with us. Therefore, external worship, physical worship, is not enough. Look at verse 24 again. God is spirit, and because of that, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. If you're going to worship God, your spirit, the immaterial part of you, must be completely engaged. God is unimpressed that our physical body showed up this morning. And by the way, that's why Christ related to us so well, when he went to the cross for us, he took on flesh, he took on bones, he lived a life that we couldn't do, he paid the price for our sin. He became one of us, but then he was he died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. And he intercedes on our behalf with the Father. He is truly at that point, he was a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man but in his essence, he was God, eternal God. God will accept nothing less than a fully engaged soul that comes to worship him in truth. You know where our worship really begins on Sunday, corporately? is when we prepare to come to church. When we put aside the things that are, you know, maybe we didn't sleep about last night, or the things that are going on in our lives, we put them aside and we need to realize when we pull in that parking lot that we're coming to worship the true and living God. The one that gives us breath. The one that has blessed us with even what we have and everything in our lives, our grandchildren, our children, our, our lives, our jobs, the food on our table, everything. We are coming to worship the God that has blessed us and cares for us, and keeps us, and holds us up with his mighty right hand. This is the God that we come to worship on Sunday. And we can never allow ourselves to get into a pattern of just showing up and doing what we do and going home. It needs to be effectual. It needs to be fervent. We are coming to worship God We're coming to exalt the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, who has given us everything, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Praise Jesus. Secondly, acceptable worship is wholehearted, not half-hearted. Acceptable worship is wholehearted, Not half hearted. It's enthusiastic. It's fervent. It's earnest. It's animated. It's the whole heart of who we are. Again, this is in the Old Testament. This is from the very beginning Deuteronomy 6 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. All our might has to be engaged. God finds half-hearted worship offensive. I wish I had time to take you through Malachi chapter 1, but quick, Malachi chapter 1, God gets all over the Israelites for their half-hearted worship. They show up, they bring their sacrifices, they're content with the animals that they have brought with flaws and spots and problems, And they just don't invest themselves fully into worship. And God is sickened by it. God is offended. You know what God says to them? Would you do this if you were going to see the governor? Would you do this if you were going to some official? Would you do this to somebody else? God is offended by their half-hearted worship. Biblical worship. Acceptable worship is wholehearted. It's passionate. We bring the best of what we have on Sunday morning to worship Christ. Now listen, I understand that my passionate worship might be different than your passionate worship. We are all different. And we're all wired different. I get that. But ask yourself this question. What most excites us in this life? Is it music? Sports? Baseball? Football? Is it golf? If it's golf, I feel really sorry for you. (laughs) But whatever it is, think about how our passion shows up when we're doing that what we most enjoy. I don't know about you, but you talk about talk to anybody you meet anybody within the first five or ten minutes you can see what drives them you can see what excites them you know it's nothing like talking to a new believer and they start talking about jesus christ it's like yeah you know But i mean there's sometimes you know people want to talk about everything else you see their heart they love it they love it and it breaks my heart to say that's how they should love jesus When we're listening to our favorite songs, when we're watching our favorite TV shows, that's our passion. That's what excites us. If we're less passionate in our hearts about worship, then we're about other things. It's not acceptable to God. It has to be wholehearted. There's nothing wrong with liking things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. That's what God's given us, these things. He's blessed us with. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, when it comes to God, when it comes that the Spirit of God is living within us, that's where our passion needs to be. Because everything else falls in line. I remember Pastor Mark used to hold up that rim. He used to hold that rim up and he always talked about this, the, the, the hub and all the spokes that connected to that hub. And he'd say, get this right. And all the rest of this stuff works in your life. Nothing wrong with enjoying things in life. But put Christ first, right? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Thirdly, acceptable worship is active. It's not passive. It's acceptable worship is active, not passive. We live in an audience-based culture, whether it's concerts or sports or movies or television or Netflix binging. I learned that from my daughter. We are accustomed to watching others perform. And often we find ourselves sitting with other people, turning off our minds and being entertained. Now what does active worship, worship in spirit, look like? When we sing, as we did this morning, we sing wholeheartedly, passionately, as if every word that we sung was from our heart and we believed to be true. Sing from our hearts to the Lord, not just mouthing the words, taking the truth of those songs and addressing them to God actively, passionately. When we pray, Here's what active worship looks like. Listen carefully to the one that's praying, that's leading us in prayer, whether it's me or someone else. Don't allow your mind to wander. Pray with the person who is praying in your heart. Pray along with them. Affirm those things that we are asking God. In your own mind, yes, Lord. I believe that, Lord. Let it happen, Lord. We need that in our lives. When we give, commit to giving regularly, cheerfully, deliberately, intentionally, as we have determined in our hearts to give to the Lord. When it comes to our reading of the Word and hearing the Word taught, bring your Bible and follow along in your Bible and think about the meaning of the passage and the one who is teaching it. Stay mentally engaged. If you need to take notes, take notes. It it, it helps us to stay engaged. Respond appropriately to the passage being taught. Believe it. Apply it. Obey it. Take it home and meditate on it through the week. I had a pastor that taught me, make sure you, you give the people in the church a lunch bag to take home with them so they can meditate on it and think about it during the week. Respond appropriately to the passage taught. When it comes to baptism, here's another prescribed element of worship. Obey the Lord and be baptized. The Scriptures teach that. And come and support those who are. And as they're sharing their testimonies, give thanks to God for His work in their lives. Pray for their spiritual growth. And when it comes to the Lord's table... Don't participate if you're not a Christian. And if you are a Christian, but are unwilling to, or refusing to give up a habitual pattern of sin in your life, or refusing to be reconciled to a brother and sister in Christ, then don't participate. And as you do participate, think about Christ. Think about Christ and His incarnation in his substitutionary death and his sacrifice for you on the cross. And as we're partaking of it, express your gratitude, your adoration, your love, your devotion to him and recommit your lives to him as you did in the beginning of your walk with the Lord. True worship is in spirit. It is always active. So there are two characteristics of true worship. You must worship in spirit and truth. But that raises a question. And this will be the end, close to the end. Why are any of us worshipers at all? Why are any of us worshipers at all? Very briefly, I want you to consider a second point Jesus makes here. And that is the one explanation for true worship. Look at verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now notice the end of verse 23. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now don't misunderstand. Don't misread this. Jesus is not saying that there are certain people who are spiritual enough in and of themselves to understand that they need to worship this way. And they are doing it, and the Father is searching the planet trying to find them. That's not what's going on here. Instead, Jesus' statement at the end of verse 23 answers this critical question. How do we become worshipers? It is because God seeks us. It's because in Christ the Father seeks us. Notice the logical flow in verse 23. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Four, because of this reason, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You fast forward to John chapter 6 and Jesus and the writer of this gospel makes it even more clearer. Jesus says, No one can come to me except the Father draw him. The Father is the one seeking. He is seeking true worshipers. This is what Jesus is teaching us. The only way to become a true worshiper is if God seeks us and by His grace, makes us true worshipers. God initiates, we respond for his glory, for his glory. And this Samaritan woman is our example. God came seeking her, and God came seeking you and me. Jesus was teaching this woman that God is by nature a savior. He seeks out even the worst of sinners and makes them Worshippers, how through his son the one that came to rescue sinners like her and like us look down at verse 24 the women of the town were saying to this woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one jesus is indeed the savior the rescuer of the world in the Lord's table, our worship focuses on Jesus Christ, the one who is indeed the Savior of the world, the one through whom the Father came seeking us to be true worshipers. Let me pray over this word that we receive today, and we'll prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Gracious Father, we... We come, Lord God, before your throne of grace. We don't come in our own strength, Lord. Apart from you, Lord God, we can't even come. But by your grace and your mercy, Lord, you loved us. You sent your son to purchase us on the cross. And Lord, that is the heart that we come to worship you. You are our Lord and our God. We bring it all to you, Lord. We put it at the foot of the cross. We ask you to forgive our sins, Lord. We ask that you would work in our lives, Lord. That you would, Lord, be the first love of our lives. That we would commit our lives to you. That we would come to worship you, Lord God, in spirit and truth. Father, I ask that you would your blessings upon this time as we come to your table Lord, we remember the death burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the great hope that we have in his return we ask your blessings upon this word today in Jesus name, Amen